0: Hey, what's up, everybody? My name's MJ, and you're listening to the MTG in Quarantine podcast. As usual, I'd like to give a quick shout-out to my local game store, Guardian Games. You can find Guardian Games on the web at ggportland.com. And just a reminder, Time Spiral Remastered just dropped today, March 19th, for pre-release. So if you're interested in finding some sealed product, definitely make sure to go to your local game store, either in person or online, to to order your Time Spiraled Sealed and Singles products. Today's episode is another interesting guest collaboration that is actually going to be returning to talking about deck building and the meat of building de- and playing decks for EDH. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest today, Carter, a more betterly, better known as Titanic Ultimatum. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So
1: as MJ said, uh, my name is Titanic Ultimatum. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as MTG underscore Naya underscore guy. Uh, I have links to my website, uh, Titanic Ultimatum, up on there. And that's probably the easiest way to find me. Uh, what I specialize in is I do budget decks, preferably for about less than 50 bucks. Uh, for EDH, and as well as talk about uh, how to make some more budget in other formats, such as modern, standard, and getting into popper as well.
0: All right, sounds interesting. Popper is actually something that I've kind of been sitting on the periphery of, not sure if I want to jump in or not, but I'll definitely look at your content for, for ideas on how to start getting into that if I do decide to delve into that into that particular slice of the MTG lexicon. Anyway... So today's topic for the podcast is going to be building budget decks in EDH, specifically decks with a $50 budget. Again, this is something that we've both done. I actually got my start building budget decks because I hate spending a lot of money on cards. So it's, it's definitely something that is also close to my heart as a deck builder, and I just wanted to have our discussion today be about the process of building a budget deck. So, obviously, we're talking about running cards that are not overly expensive on your wallet. Again, this is regardless of their actual use and utility in the game. So, we're going to start with how we set a budget, how we go about building the deck under that budget, and then trying to make it work and try to make it functional in, in a standard four-player EDH pod. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds good to me. All right. So about the budget, you in the pre-show, I know we talked about how we both have tried to keep most of the budgets in our budget decks to $50 or less. What about $50 has really piqued your interest about a good ceiling for building budget decks?
1: So originally, it was because I wanted to make decks that were around the price of like a pre-release kit or a pre-con. And so when you consider tax and all of that, a lot of times you can get up into the 40s of dollars. And I wanted to kind of set how, kind of like set a limit for myself of how can I make as good of a deck as possible while staying in that price range that uh, someone would ha- have if they just went into a game store, say on pre-release night or whatever, to see just kind of that same price point. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's definitely been something that both of us have really taken to heart, whether this has something to do with us not wanting to spend a lot of money on specific cards or whether we're just trying to do this for the challenge. I found personally the budget building actually forces me to get much more creative with my card choices than if I was just jamming a whole bunch of format staples into a deck and calling it good. And obviously people who have been listening to my show for a long time know that I'm a big-time jank brewer. I love building kind of off-the-wall decks or or even just regular decks using some very wacky, zany card choices that things people things people have never heard of. And I wanted to hear your process. When you're trying to build a new deck, where do you begin? How do you choose a commander? How do you start trying to build a very useful strategy? And then also, where... I guess I want to hear more about your process of how you take the deck from idea to cards to actually building and playing the and piloting the full deck.
1: Yeah. So first thing is normally I don't use a lot of newer cards that just came out because they're a lot more volatile when it comes to price. Uh, so a lot of times I I don't really pick a commander first a lot of times I will end up picking like a theme or a mechanic. Like, uh, As a little bit of a treat, I'll talk to you about uh, an upcoming article of mine where I'm actually building a Revolt deck from Kaladesh. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, kind of my process is first I pick a mechanic and figure out what makes that mechanic kind of tick. And so, say Revolt is all about having permanents leave the battlefield. And So when you kind of look through and what colors uh, are that mechanic in? In terms of revolt, it's in the Abzan color pie. Well, that actually works because when you think of Abzan, you think of more aristocrats and you think of counters and you think of all these other kind of things that tend to have a little bit more synergy. Uh, And so a lot of times it'll end up being just you'll either pick a commander that you have sitting around already uh, that's in those colors, but sometimes it's also like, there's other times where you have a mechanic that's in all five colors. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you kind of got to think, then, is there a certain color that has better of this mechanic? Or is there a, like flashback? Flashback's in all five colors, for the most part, but blue flashback and red flashback tend to be a little bit better, or they're a little bit more well-played, per se.
0: And they're also pretty well-supported, too, with the, with the variety of cards you're allowed to have in blue. They even bring cards back from exile, as well.
1: Exactly. And so a lot of that kind of goes in. And so a lot of times, you already have an idea for what you want the deck to look like and do before you even really decide what colors you want to play in or your commander. Um, so I, that tends to be a longer process for me. And some, it's not something that you just come up with, uh, in the shower or anything. It's, uh, something that may take, you know, a couple of hours to kind of really dig and look and see if there's synergies that you want, because if the deck isn't good, no matter how much you spend, it's, you're not going to have fun with it, you know, even though it's commander and it's casual, if you win zero percent of the time, you're still not going to have fun, uh, or you're so,
0: going to potentially have those situations where you enjoy how it's going, but that that that's pretty rare. That you're going to have a deck that rarely, if ever, wins, and you still enjoy playing it. I mean, we still technically are playing to win in this format. So you're you're right. It. Winning percentage, even though it's not everything in a casual game versus the standard, uh, versus standard or modern, any any of the two player formats, you're still probably trying to win with some sort of strategy. So yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah, so I'll kind of go on with the revolt, and it being an Abzan, a lot of the cards have to deal with, uh, especially the green cards, care a lot about they enter with additional counters on them. Uh, when you trigger revolt there's cards like fatal push it's better removal if you trigger uh, revolt and there's also cards like hidden stockpile Mm -hmm. that's a uh, white and a black kind of aristocrats type uh enchantment for revolt and a lot of those things really work well with that abzan color pie so i knew that for building that deck You want to be in all three colors, even if it's going to be harder on a budget, because getting access to all of those cards is so much more synergistic than if you were going to limit it to just, say, Golgari, or just uh, don't You want to get access to those powerful enablers for that theme, or for that mechanic. And so I ended up going, I chose Abzan for that deck, and then you also kind of look, and there's a lot of cards, like uh, Dagadar the Adamate, that is a commander that cares about plus one plus one counters. But also coming out with Ikoria was that Abzan pre-con that doesn't even care about, say, plus one plus one counters, but rather it's just counters in general. Cards like Tyrim is actually what cares about reanimating, Well, reanimating is really good when you care about aristocrats, and mm-hmm. they enter with vigilance counters. So there you have your counter synergy that also goes with that green deck or the green portion of revolt. And you got tokens that, uh, for uh, aristocrating for your uh, uh, hidden stockpile. So a com- some commanders just kind of naturally fit in, even though you wouldn't think that Tyam would be a uh, revolt commander it ends up being a lot more synergistic when you kind of really think about what that mechanic wants to do and what that mechanic has a lot of synergy with. So I ended up going with Tyam uh, for, for Revolt deck, and it ends up being kind of a cool deck. Even though you have three colors, uh, having access to green tends to be a lot better in terms of ramp. You know, having to pay for a lano or elves is a lot cheaper than a soul ring. hmm You know. You gotta put those consideration in when you're wanting to build a fifty dollar deck, having to spend three dollars for a soul ring, you know, when you can only have fifty cents per card, you gotta also think like, well, if I wanna play this card, then I have to cut back this card, this card and this card. Mm-hmm. And for having access to green is actually really good for budget decks because their ramp tends to be a lot cheaper. Cards like Cultivate is so much cheaper than Solar Cards like the Llanowar Elves and all of that is a lot more synergistic even with time because you can reanimate them. And so having that permanent-based ramp is really good. It also it gives you a creature so that you can trigger Revolt. So there's a lot of my decks, what I'm trying to build, care more about synergy than converted mana cost or mana value, as it's going to be called in uh, Strixhaven. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot. So there's other that's kind of a big thing when building on a budget is just don't really look at the CMCS because a lot of the cards there's going to be strictly better versions because they cost a mana or two cheaper. Well, in uh, Commander, does that really matter? You know, does hitting your ramp on turn 3 rather than turn 2 matter if it's going to be a 10-turn game? Could it? Yes. But is there just as much of a chance that it doesn't matter at all? Absolutely. You know, so your mana lifts rather than having to play Arcane Signet. Mm-hmm. There's a huge price difference, but in the end kind of game, does it really matter? And a lot of the times, if you're playing with people that have similar budgets, like, I'm not going to say that any $50 deck can beat a $1,000 deck or $300 deck easily, but it's Commander where you're also you know, only expecting to, say, have a 20-25% chance to win, does mm-hmm. ramping a turn later really matter? In general, probably not. You know, if, if everyone's at a pod where things are similarly leveled, then playing on a budget doesn't really matter nearly as much. You know, one thing that kind of also inspired is uh, those familiar with the MTG Goldfish uh, EDH channel. Uh, Tomer or Budget Commander plays a lot of budget green decks and absolutely wipes the table. You know, that's kind of got a a, uh famous for that per se, and that's kind of also something that you really also it helps you kind of put your budget in mind, it just doesn't matter quite as much, Mm yeah and i guess kind of another big process for me when building decks is knowing how much money to put into the land slot.
0: Oh yeah, that's really right. important. Yeah,
1: you know, and there's a lot of factors that really go into that. You know, if you're playing a one-color deck versus a two-color deck versus three plus color decks, you know, you can't afford to put a city of brass in every deck. You can't afford to put, you know, shock lands even a lot of the time.
0: Mana confluence or and yeah, any of those uh, filtering lands that allow you to do one man of any color, but are rather expensive.
1: Yeah, they tend to be, you know, once again, I think they can be anywhere between say like six, seven bucks to seventeen dollars, and when you're building fifty dollar decks, that's a lot. And, you know, that's kind of also where playing green can help. You know, there's getting access to just cultivates so that you can play more basics makes a big deal because a lot of times basics are considered free when deck building. And that's one thing that I think a lot of players really kind of overestimate is how often they're going to get color screwed. You know, most players can probably afford to play a lot more basics than they think they can. And then others, you know, especially if you're a green deck, you can play a lot of basics because you have a lot of effects that can pull out basics. Because that's kind of green's thing is it's really good at color fixing. Mm -hmm. Let's say you're more on the Mardu or something like that it can be a little bit harder because you don't even have access to, say, Artifact Tutors or anything like that that Blue gets access to. It get, can get a little bit more tricky, and that's when you really kind of have to leverage the fact that you're going to want cards more like Prismatic Lens to filter your mana. You're going to want cards like Mana Lift and all of those other kind of cards to really be able to still keep tempo up. Cause that's the big thing that can kind of hinder a budget commander deck is tempo. And losing a lot of tempo by playing tap lands, it's, it's, I guess, kind of similar to like, not playing your first land drop. So that's kind of, can be a big thing. And it cannot be a big thing. And it's all kind of dependent on your pod. And that's kind of one thing that I found is... From, I play a lot of my decks that I write about in paper or on MTGO because I want to see out if there, it's going to be fun for me to play. Uh, and so I've actually... Uh, probably one of my favorite decks that I wrote about, I've slowly kind of upgraded by what I pull in a pre-release kit or whatever. And it's ended up being one of my favorite decks, and that's uh, uh Beloved of the Sun. Or Beloved of uh Sea.
0: Yep, Mono Blue, out of Theros. Yeah. Or yeah, Theros, I, Beyond um, Death, sorry.
1: Yeah. I absolutely loved that deck. Uh, and it was a Mono Blue Tempo deck based off of uh, Rivals of Ixalan, uh, Mono Blue with curi- it's a Curious Obsession and it's just a Motto Blue curiosity deck. Okay. And other things, like, I guess, uh, knowing what's going to be in your pod and knowing really how that's going to affect you can affect kind of uh, your deck-building choices. So knowing that if everyone's playing uh, a pod of the demigods of Theros Beyond Death, then playing cards like a Null makes kind of a bigger difference. It's a cheaper counterspell, but it's basically Tail's End in your deck. You know?
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and and knowing what your PAW is doing is something that's very understated in a lot of the MTG content that we either produce or the other creators produce because, again... We like we tend to enjoy having our own pods, people we play with from our LGS in some cases, or people we've met online in the last year. And we're trying to make a science or an art out of a proposition that is still very challenging and trying to figure out exactly what best to use in any given situation. If you were to sit down at let's say a Magic Fest or even just online through a various Discord servers and you were to try to play with a brand new group of people, and you have a $50 budget deck, what do you think you should be running may be very different than what you would be running against a group of people you've been playing with for years, let's say. So in my example, I have my regular play group from my LGS and a friend I've had for 10, 15 years. And I typically build most of my decks as with using that group as a starting point, obviously. Because I know their decks fairly well, I know what they do well and what they don't do well, and I try to change my decks accordingly. And I so I do a lot of my testing with that group before I start taking my decks into the greater group. So I can try to sand out some of the rougher parts, try to work out some of the issues, and just see if the deck is worth playing or is fun at all. And... One of the, the biggest examples of really understanding your meta is actually something I just talked about on the podcast yesterday. I am going to be participating in a white-bordered EDH game with my friends j and Peter, a.k.a. Mono Whiteboarder. We are running EDH decks that we have built that are made out exclusively out of white-bordered cards from unlimited all the way up to Ninth edition core set. And this is a meta where we have an extremely limited card pool, but I wanted to not only see how much of a challenge I can make this for my own build, but I wanted to also do it on a budget. I ended up building this deck that I'm currently holding right now in my hand for about $35. Obviously, if I throw in my revised edition Soul Ring that I've had for a while, that price goes up. But the fact that I wanted to build this on a budget forced me to think about cards differently. I had to evaluate cards in a very different way given the limited card pool then I would versus just any standard $50 deck that I would build because I can only choose the cards that are basically legal in this format. So, I yes, I am playing green. I am playing Naya, so this is up your alley. I'm playing the original Palladium Ores, the, the um, Elder Dragon. So 7-7 seven, seven Flying Trampler with the rather annoying Naya upkeep cost. I'm, I'm playing a Enchantress deck, actually, so I'm running both Verdurn and Yavamai Enchantress in here trying to get a few payoffs of just running a whole buttload of enchantment cards. And obviously I know what my opponents are going to be playing. We've been talking about deck lists for a while. We're going to hopefully be playing here real soon. And I know what my opponents are going to be doing. So I'm building, I built some of the deck around that concept, around knowing that they're, I'm going to be facing off against Chromium, let's say. Or uh, Decon Blackblade, as Peter loves talking about. He, he tweets about it all the time on Twitter, about things he's adding to it. Well, that's a Esper Commander. How can I, as a Naya Commander deck, try to counteract what blue and black are doing, since I don't have access to those colors? So it forced me to have to do a thought exercise of what not only makes a good Naya deck using this extremely limited card pool but also just understanding what cards I can throw in there at a very low cost financial-wise to try to be able to give myself a potential leg up on my opponents. And that has really been a major challenge for me, but I really enjoyed building the deck. I tried playing against my regular play group a few weeks ago. It went horribly wrong, but I was fine with that. My deck was not quite doing what I wanted it to, but I needed to make some tweaks on that anyway. But the, the point here is that I actually had a lot of fun building the deck. It doesn't work the best outside of the, the whiteboard or meta, but it definitely challenged me in a lot of different ways that even I as a fairly experienced budget deck builder right now, or at least someone who would like to think that he's somewhat of an expert, uh, it, it made me have to reevaluate my own process for discovering cards and then finding interesting ways to make it work just given the, the number of restrictions I put on the deck.
1: Yeah, that's something I I also find probably a lot more fun. is, And I think a lot of people almost have more fun building decks than playing them.
0: Oh yeah, I can definitely attest to that.
1: And, you know, that's a lot of kind of how I make decks. Like, I made a mono-white Soul Sisters near-death experience deck. And stuff like that, That would I probably enjoy playing it? No, because I am someone that forgets a lot of triggers, and so I would end up getting frustrated at myself. But is it something that someone that, you know, really wants to play a Soul Sisters deck, would really like being able to play, and they find, you know, a $50 deck that does everything they want to? Absolutely. And would it be fun in a pod that's also looking for everyone's trying to get one cool alternate win condition to go out. Absolutely. That you know that's something that I don't think can be overstated enough is being able to build a deck for a pod will allow you to have so much more fun than just playing it versus strangers. You know, being able to go, you know, we're all playing decks from the of around the same power like we're all playing, say, popper commander decks, or we're all playing fifty dollar decks, or we're all doing this. Okay. It gives you uh restrictions and it it can be a lot more fun than you would probably originally think because you're not feeling necessarily as salty about someone getting, you know, a turn one soul ring when you know that they spent a lot more of their budget going towards it and that you have to be prepared for that kind of stuff. I find that to be a lot of fun, especially when I'm brewing a deck. of. If When I brew a deck, what would I want to be in that pod? And that tends to have a lot more uh, creative choices when making decks as well. And I find it to be a, a lot more fun uh, if you can build a deck for a pod rather than for uh, a random meta.
0: Yeah, I really enjoy that, too, because like I said earlier, I know who my opponents are. I know what their decks are, and they don't really like building decks all that much versus I build just a bunch of decks. I bring them in the games. They win a game or two, and then I try to reevaluate. For instance, on Monday, I built a very... Janky, weird scion of the air dragon deck. I was just digging through my long box of chaff looking for every big beater dragon I could, threw him into a giant goulash, and ended up actually winning a game with it because I was able to reanimate all of my dragons out of the graveyard. And it's just one of those kinds of decks where I don't know if I'd want to necessarily do that sort of thing on a long term basis but the fact that I was able to try something new really makes me happy when I build decks. I like trying to not take the beaten path, try to find something a little bit different that I've never done before. I would never utilized dragons in any any sort of real deck, um, and so it was an opportunity to throw some of them in there. Obviously, we had powerful ones, but I even threw Sheevan Dragon in there just because you know it, it is an important card in the MTG lore, and it, a lot of people have a soft spot for it, and it was one of the first cards I ever got, too. So I think that being able to utilize... Uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it a pet card in that case, but being able to try a different play style really made it for me, even if I probably won't actually take that outside of my play pod.
1: Yeah, and sometimes... I mean, I'll, I'll refer back to that uh, Caliphate deck that I made. It was the first ever blue deck I played. You know, I've, and that's including pre-releases and other pre-cons.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and that's something that I ended up finding that I really like building that deck. I really like having just a deck that started off as draft chaff, and now it's just you know, whenever I come back from a pre-release, it's oh, I opened this cool big dumb six mana blue control finisher or whatever, mm-hmm. and you know, that's perfect for the deck. You know, and just having stuff like that that I I think a big thing, especially when you're building on a budget, is knowing that when you make something budget, it's alright if you don't like it. Because say you only spend twenty five dollars. Well, twenty five dollars could be a lot to someone. Twenty five dollars is also, you know, the same price as a pre release kit. And you'll most people only expect to play a pre release kit one time. Maybe two times. It's the same that can go for, you know, when building a cheaper deck of, you know, I found out that, hey, I really don't like how this commander plays out or I really don't like how these cards played out. You're not necessarily out a whole deck. You're not necessarily out $25 or $35 or however much your deck ends up being, but it can really get those brewing juices going again, knowing that, you know, If I really like this but I just don't like that it I really don't like that it had curiosity type cards in it. And I'd rather go focus more on artifacts or enchantments. Well there you know, and you still can use the core of the deck for a lot of it. And stuff like that that I think happens to help a lot of budget brewers because you're not, say, buying a mana drain and they go, Oh, I don't like blue decks. So Mm -hmm. never end up using it you buy a 15 cent bulk rare, you're only out 15 cents.
0: Yeah, and I'll typically do that when I'm buying cards. I know I'm trying to build a certain deck. I know I'm buying more cards than I need. I'm going to end up making cuts later. So for yeah. instance, again, with my Palladium Ors deck, I'm just going to bring that back in the discussion here. I ended up having to cut Holy Strength. I was originally going to utilize it, give Equip Creature plus one, plus two for one white as an enchantment aura. It works with the strategy. It provides a bit of a boost. But when I got down to it, I had 106 or 107 cards in the pool. Something has to go. And I felt like more often than not, maybe Holy Strength won't necessarily work out. But I got that card so cheap that I don't I don't feel like I'm out anything not including it. Maybe later I'll toss it back in the deck, but I got it for 15 to $0.18 cents, uh, at Card Kingdom when I made the whole order. And the fact of the matter is that I feel a lot better about cutting a card that's $0.15 cents than I would about cutting something that's 5 to $10. Let's face it, we want to use these cards that we have. And, well... It's nice to be able to have access to the cards that are, let's say, $5 and over. That's a that's typically what I look for Is kind of like a baseline of, what have you done for me lately? But I do prefer trying to at least keep my decks very budget so that if I do have to make those painful cuts, I'm out 15 to 30 cents. I'm not out 15 to $30. Yeah, that's
1: something that I think... You know, there, that's something that I think a lot of people can kind of take to heart, and probably should pay attention to. You know, it's one thing to be out $5, it's another thing to be out $0.15, cents, like you said. You know, and building on a budget, and being a better brewer, because you don't have access to those cards, makes it a lot easier to upgrade, if you find you do like the deck.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, i That Califei deck that I have is, I want to say it's probably closer to, say, like, $100 now. You know, I put an extra, I think, $45 or $55 into it from when I originally built it, because I found out I really like that playstyle, so I don't feel like I'm out that money. Because, you know, upgrading from a Mana Lift to a Soul Ring, you know, some of those cards you're going to use regardless of decks. Like, most decks... Will use a soul ring just as often as they would use a mana hmm But knowing that you have that consistency because you know you like the deck already, and you want it to upgrade to be able to fit in a different pot, or knowing that you know if I put an extra twenty dollars into this deck, it would be perfect for playing against this pot. Because some people have different pods, where they have a budget pod they have a more expensive pod, and knowing that. This would be really fun to bring to this table, or this could be really fun, or same thing can also go if you have a more expensive deck that you're just like, you know, uh, this would be a lot more fun at a cheaper table. Something that I think of is, like, goblins. Like, goblins, you know, without access to mana echoes or a lot more, like, combo cards, can still be just playing a bunch of goblins. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a lot of those commanders and playstyles that can go on different tiers of budgets, make them really good budget picks, because you can find cards that you've never seen before, and your playgroup has never seen before. I remember there was one game I played, and I believe it was like every single turn besides, besides what I just played, like in Island and Go, it was... What does that card do, or I've never seen or heard of that card before, and it's just some of these things it's just, you know, it it's it's almost more fun when you have a play group and they're like, I had no idea that was the card.
2: Oh you, yeah,
0: you
1: can have some fun with that.
0: Yeah, I I actually have a really funny story about that. So on Tuesday, I was on the Magic with Zuby stream game. Zuby's a great guy. Just got back into streaming after having some issues with his house. Anyway, I was playing. Something I've a deck I've found very interesting lately, which is monocolorless. And so I'm piloting a Karn Silver Golem deck. And it's there's a lot of interesting challenges there trying to figure out how you make up for the fact you don't have access to any five colors in your mana base. Anyway, uh, turn three, I dropped a card that no one I know has ever heard of called Chimeric Egg. It is an artifact for three. And you put charge counters on it, and if you take charge counters off, you can turn Chimeric Egg into a 6-6 with Trample until end of turn. Well, all of a sudden, by turn 4, I've got the entire board afraid of this 6-6 I can effectively call at instant speed onto my side of the board. And it's one of those things where no one has really heard about it. It's, on, it's in less than 100 decks on EDH Rack. It's dirt cheap, and I finally found the perfect home for it in that deck. I hadn't I have been trying to find home for it for a while, but that deck it just really worked because the fact that I was able to throw a giant creature at someone's face or use it as a blocker that quickly. I mean, it it was actually quite effective. I was surprised at how useful that card was. Same thing for uh, haunted plate mail, which I also run in that deck for allowing me to have a creature that's a 4-4 if I don't have any other creatures on the battlefield, same in instant speed. Cards that you wouldn't normally use in other decks and are dirt cheap, but in that deck just really provide a threat level to your opponents that they have to always keep an eye out for.
1: Yeah, and I think that's... You know, part of the spirit of kind of EDH is playing with those you know, random cards that don't see play in formats, like anywhere else. Like, you don't really hear of Vintage playing a Manalith or a Sky Diamond, and a lot of times you don't even play them in draft. But being able to make memories with a dirt-cheap 15-cent card Chimeric Egg, you're going to remember that, and that's worth that money that you put in. And that's kind of the easiest thing with Commander and E.E.H. is just with how cheap a lot of a cards can be, when you do draw it and you can make that play and it ends up surprising the table and giving you this advantage by playing a 15 cent card, it's like nothing else. Knowing that it it can then be a pet card and having pet cards in commander is so much fun
0: yeah chimeric egg is definitely over the last couple of times i've used it it's never led me astray i'm able to drop it on turn three on curve and it's basically like having a creature because your opponents are going to be playing non-artifact spells from turns three to five especially in my local pod As i know they i mean they will play some mana rocks but typically you're trying to build your board you're going to maybe do a little bit of ramp play a creature, and it's just a great way to just be able to get a whole lot of value and just just by sitting back and doing absolutely nothing. So I'm definitely coming around to the point where that is one of my pet cards. And I have another example here. the other deck that's actually sitting here at the desk with me is a deck that I originally built to be about $15. and the the joke here is that so it's a Voltron deck. And the joke here is, I actually this is the only deck that I currently run Demonic Tutor in, oddly enough. And so it's it's like budget quote unquote because it really depends on if I throw Demonic Tutor in there or not. I'm not a combo player personally. I don't really run a lot of combos and or sorry, I run a lot of tutors in my deck because I just I feel like they don't provide me the the value I need for the long games that my play group plays we we try to play as much combat as possible so that's just how we play it's how i personally enjoy playing i'm not saying higher hair about other how other people should play but anyway i do run demonic tutor in this deck and what's really funny about it is basically everything else in the deck is 15 to 20 cents super cheap equipments for my voltron commander i played a game a few months ago where i made a big deal about the fact i cast a 40 dollar demonic tutor to go grab, I don't remember what it was like. Rogues gloves or something. Hit hit an opponent. Draw a card. I didn't even end up playing the card, but I just got more value out of the laughs that I myself and the other players had about me utilizing this objectively powerful card that sees play in every format that's ever been legal. In to go grab Rogues gloves, which you know most people don't even know of, know about. Or I mean, it's it, it's it's that draft chaff card you might play in limited but it's great in my deck it does exactly what i need it to in in that deck but i'm searching it up with demonic tutor so it's it's kind of one of those things where i feel like it's a budget deck but i just threw the demonic tutor in there just to be hilarious because that's something people never really see typically when you're going to demonic tutor for something you're looking for a board wipe you're looking for a combo piece you're looking for a giant creature i just searched up a Tiny two-drop artifact that allows you to draw a card when you hit your opponent with a creature. It doesn't exactly work with the with the way Demonic Tutor is usually used. So I I, I just think it's kind of funny uh, how how that turned out. And it, it, there's never a dull moment when I resolve Demonic Tutor to do something like that. Yeah,
1: and that that's part of having fun with that budget in mind is it's worth it a lot of time for those memories like there's play something i found is unless you're say at like a gp or anything you don't really remember modern night quite as much like, you don't really remember standard night or you probably well, things that you probably remember is that draft where you opened that absolute bomb rare that was perfect you remember those commander games where you do something exactly like that for demonic tutor into a rogues gloves. You know, it's something like that that makes it so much more fun building on a budget because you think of like, you know, I only spent twenty five dollars and I'm gonna have that memory that lasts a lifetime rather than you know, spending sixty, eighty, hundred dollars or whatever on a commander deck. That you end up not liking. You know, it's it's a lot more, not even necessarily about the deck, but about that satisfaction that you have playing and piloting it.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. I I've built and torn apart more decks than I can really count in just the last year alone. And the the decks that I've torn apart were I have very lenient standards when it comes to decks. I typically don't tear them apart unless I know I'm absolutely not going to play with them anymore because they're not fun. One of the decks that I most recently tore apart and I'm still in the process of tearing apart is actually Anawan the Rune Thief. I picked up the pre-con when Zendikar Rising came out. I wanted to give it a try. It sounded like an interesting way to get into tribal. The deck didn't work. Just straight up did not work. And I I tried to do everything I could with that specific deck. I added a few cards in here and there that I already had in my collection. I was already fortunate enough to own a Thotta Adele uh, in my own collection, so I didn't need to pay what like the ten to fifteen bucks that she costs now. I was able to just slot her into that deck, and I just found that it was it needed a lot more upgrades that was monetary to really make the deck work, and it wasn't working the way I wanted it to. I wasn't having any fun. I was always getting stuck with little 1-1s when my opponents were coming out with, you know, let's say six, seven dragons or just giant beater creatures in green. And it just, it really wasn't working for me. Versus, uh, again, my Voltron deck. Let's use that again as an example. Sure, I've been hosed quite a few times using this deck. I don't play it a whole ton. I bring it out once in a while when I feel like playing a Voltron strategy. But it does what it needs to, and the the budget is no problem, and I just enjoy the the perverse aspect of, one, being able to cast Demonic Tutor into any random piece of equipment I have in there, but also just the fact that it is so budget that it shouldn't work, but it always outperforms the, 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 the actual wallet cost. I, I've actually won quite a few games with this deck that people had absolutely no idea that I could hit them for, I, I don't know, uh, 10 on turn five, let's say, if I get cranial plating out on curve and I'm able to get my commander out on curve, well, all of a sudden there's eight to 10 damage right at your face on turn five. And you should not be able to do that with this kind of a budget. But the fact is, is that you, if you find the right cards and you really enjoy it, you're going to remember those games. You're going to remember, Hey, you remember that time on turn five, I hit you for 10 it's just that Those are the kinds of games you write that you're going to remember versus I, I honestly don't remember half the times I've played with my higher-powered decks. Those have just kind of gotten lost in my memory. They're, they're better decks. They're more powerful, quote-unquote, if we're going to use the problematic power scale again. They would be more focused, more optimized. They're not Battlecruiser, and there's more money sank into them. But I don't remember half the games I've played with them. But if I can cast a Demonic Tutor into a Rogue's Gloves, I'm always going to remember that. I'm always going to be able to have a laugh about that, ask my friends, hey, do you remember that one time I did this? They'll probably remember. So you're right. It's one of those things where building on a budget doesn't have to mean building bad decks. I did a whole podcast a while back on why jank decks, or you know, basically, quote-unquote, unoptimized decks, can still be extremely fun to play because you as the player can still gain value and enjoyment out of a deck, even if it's not "quote unquote" powerful, as long as you're enjoying what you're doing with that deck, that's all that really matters in a casual format. Yeah,
1: and that—that's kind of the gist of what what I try and do with my decks, and that's why a lot of my decks include alternate win conditions because you know it's those kind of decks that make memories, and then knowing that you only spent fifty bucks on it. It's just by icing on top, and that's part of what makes it so much better.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to ask you, again, I've used a couple of examples of some of my decks. I wanted to ask you an example. Just talk about one of your other decks and how your process for trying to figure out exactly how to play with it and what you really enjoy about that.
1: Yeah, so one of my first starts was I actually built a Samet Voice of Descent. And my entire goal was to make a Naya control deck. Because that's something that you don't think of. You think of Naya and you think of, like, God Sire, and you think of big, stompy creatures. And I actually made a $50 version of Salmon that was Spellshaper Tribal. You know, something like that, or Tap and Untap Tribal. And it plays cards, like Intrepid Hero, and Jara Ballard, and, you know, cards that, uh, I guess, other cards that also untap things that just allow you to get value, and that was probably my favorite deck that I've piloted in such a long time, because it was one of those where someone goes, oh yeah, okay, I know exactly what you're going to be playing, and then you just come out of left field.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: it still plays those cards like at the time, Beast Whisper was cheap, and Butter of Ruins was cheaper. But you know, it it came out, and it was you know, knowing that Naya leverages by drawing cards, or Nile draws cards by playing creatures, and knowing that Samut cares about untapping creatures and giving them haste, being able to play you know, spell shapers like um, there's one of the spell shapers that. You tap and discard a card, and it fogs. You know, is that going to be good in like any other deck? No, but it's the best card in that deck. Being able to play cards like Magus of the Disc, because giving it uh, haste and being able to untap it means that you can activate it right away, and you got a board wipe for everything. And those kind of cards that just helps you make memories if it can work, are so much better.
0: Yeah, they, they, they definitely are. And that's why I've really pushed myself away as a deck builder from building more focused, more optimized decks towards trying to build towards the battle cruiser style that I just personally find more fun. So most of the time, these decks are going to get absolutely murdered in more optimized pods. Unfortunately, that's something we have to deal with as EDH players is the power level conversation. Again, I, I said that term again, um, but it was just trying to find evenly matched decks, and that's not always going to happen. My Palladium Wars deck could not deal with modern cards. There's just no way that a bunch of cards from the 90s could could ever match up with the power that they're coming out with now but I feel like you're getting the moral victory just by playing it in those pods because it wasn't designed for that, but you're still able to have those moments where people don't know what that card does and they're pleasantly surprised to see it actually doing something. Um, yeah, I've, I've got, or, or even just using commanders that people don't really know much about. I'm going to use an example of my Rayov Master Smith deck that I built a month or so ago. Uh, coming out dwarf legend, coming out of Commander Legends, and it's uh, a two-two dwarf for red and a white. And whenever a creature you control that's either equipped or enchanted attacks, it gains double strike until end of turn. Well, all of a sudden, the the couple of times I've played in my in my play group, I'm swinging out with Rayov at someone for six on turn three. It's just that powerful. And it doesn't seem like it should be. Obviously, it runs out of steam after, like, turn six or seven, unfortunately, as my opponents stabilize. But the fact is is that I'm able to strike for a ton of damage early by getting my creatures out, getting low-cost artifacts out there. I'm playing Bonesaw. I'm playing Shuko. Those are not very expensive cards. At least, Shuko used to be really cheap. It's like a buck now. But, uh, you know, something like Bonesaw, for instance, they don't look like much. But all of a sudden, they work with that commander. They do things. You don't have to spend a lot of money to be able to get that deck to do things. There's a lot of really cheap enchantments in white. Holy Strength. You can, I can toss that on Rayov, and all of a sudden, he's swinging for three. Or, or sorry, six on turn three again. There's just so many things you can do to be creative, even under a budget, because there's a lot of great cards. And again, I think the, the biggest thing that at least I was very confused when I first got into Magic a couple years ago was that the most powerful cards, or at least very good cards, don't have to be expensive monetarily. You can have a lot of very good cards that only cost a dollar or cost 50 cents because maybe they're not format staples. If we want to consider staples being the most expensive cards, let's say, or if we want to go into supply and demand, whatever, I, I really don't try to go into the finance side of things too much, but you can still find a lot of really good cards really cheap, and maybe the, maybe the card you want to play is really expensive. Odds are in the 27, 28,000, almost 30,000 cards that have been released legally, in, sorry, in non-silver-bordered cards in Magic's history, there's got to be something out there that's functionally similar. It, it probably costs a little more CMC-wise, but if you can play something that's 30 cents instead of $10, well, if you're playing on a $50 budget, it's going to effectively do the same thing, and you're right. We, we did mention this earlier. It's probably not going to matter in half your games or more, so just... Using that budget to restrict yourself forces you to be, I think, more creative in the end. And I think that's really something that a lot more players should try if they haven't before, is maybe try to find some different cards you've never heard of before, or just even do a scryfall search. See what you want to do, find some keywords that you they haven't really looked at before, and just go nuts see what's out there i i didn't know half the cards in my palladium wars deck existed before i searched and tried to build the deck and i think it actually came out quite well because i found a whole bunch of new cards and i wasn't afraid to try new things
1: yeah i i think that's that's kind of the theme that has been uh, this episode is just a lot of the times it doesn't end up mattering you know um. Counterspell versus Cancel, even. You know, it's just paying for extra mana or two. It it doesn't... Is there going to be some games that matters? Yes. But you, your level of enjoyment can almost go up by playing more budget picks. And I think that's kind of a big thing, is no matter what, Commander is a casual format, and Magic is supposed to be enjoyed. And if you enjoy... By playing on a budget and you find that so much more exciting and fun knowing that your $25 deck just took down a titan of a format, you have so much more fun. And that's why I really try and build a lot more budget decks and try and even beyond playing commander seeing how can we make this deck more budget or what is the most expensive parts and how can we continue to keep synergy that really holds decks together while playing on a budget.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring that up because we, we are circling back to the opening of the show where we were talking about some of the 60-card formats. And I guess it's interesting, just me as a creator, but also just as a consumer of content, to see what a lot of creators are starting to put out now regarding deck techs for the standard 60-card formats. And it's interesting how obviously budget has become a lot more of a keyword since we're dealing with the pandemic right now. A lot of people are short on are are very short on money right now. And obviously we can't drop the money we want to into the game. But if there's a budget option in, in, in some of these formats, does that bring new players in the format? I think it definitely does. I, for instance, I, I don't play modern because it has a very high entry cost but if you were to, to tell me that hey here's a 100 dollar deck that actually functionally does just about as well as the 600 dollar deck you know i i might be more interested in taking a look at that over time versus hey you have to pay 600 dollars of the door is is this an entry fee or is this a way that we can try to utilize our edh thinking about how budget can actually be a good thing and not be a hamper to start re-evaluating how we look at other formats and that that that's probably a different conversation entirely i just think it's interesting to consider that as a possibility about why budget has become so important here recently is it it just maybe edh and commander have had more of an impact on the other formats than we know of
1: yeah and i like that you mentioned modern because that's actually what my latest uh article was about was my favorite deck of all time is Zoo. And Zoo is known as being very expensive because you play a lot of fetch lands. And I took this you know $800 fetch land-filled deck, and I took it down to $150. Because knowing that still having this synergy, and although you might have to play another basic or two, and leveraging even from the popper format of uh, there's a red green cascade deck that plays very similar to Zoo and knowing how you can leverage between different formats. Now, is the deck going to be nearly as good as the $600 version? No, but it still keeps that synergy. And it still keeps that what makes the deck tick. It just takes it to a little bit more budget, and that's how I actually got into modern was by building this budget uh, zoo deck.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's definitely something that I would be looking in for if I ever got the itch to start trying out 60-card formats. Obviously, a lot of that has had to do with the pandemic and all these events being postponed or canceled, but... The fact that there are budget builds out there does give me a little bit of hope that maybe someday if I did say, hey, you know what? I want to try modern out. I want to build this deck. This really speaks to me. Well, if I don't have to drop $600 on mostly fetch lands and then a few other things, that makes me feel a lot better about trying to get in there versus having to spend the $600 and saying, you know, that $600 right there, honestly, $600 could build me, I don't know, 15 to 20 commander decks, probably the way I build them. Because budget is good. And I think I'd have a lot more fun playing 15 to 20 different commander decks, even if some of them don't stick around more than just playing one modern deck the once I buy it and I don't like it. well, you're you're out again, we're talking about being out a lot of money at that point. So it's just interesting to look at how budget has just influenced everything. And I think it's a conversation we're going to be having a lot more as the pandemic continues and then eventually as events do start opening up again and money is going to be tighter than it was before for a lot of players. So how will other formats and, and EDH especially respond?
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think that's something that certainly has inspired a lot of my own deck building is how, how can this deck continue to operate or how can I do it knowing that a lot of people aren't going to have the money to drop on this or that. So using a lot of cards that you would get in a pre-release kit or something like that really can help out a lot of players. And that's something that I really kind of take a lot of
0: pride in. And this is also a reason why I think people should play more basic lands and also why I'm a big advocate for just standard kitchen table magic where it doesn't really matter what format you're playing in I have a mono black Zombies deck that's modern legal. Is it modern playable? No. But do I still keep it around? Yes. Because you never quite know when you, someone just wants to play with 60 cards, and there's nothing on the line. You don't have to worry about being overly competitive. You can just play. And that's really what got me into playing EDH, was I, I learned how to play utilizing just 60-card decks, whatever I had sitting around, and then learned, wait, you mean there's a whole format based upon this? And that's how I got hooked on EDH. Yeah,
1: I I started off playing in Commander as well. Just uh, funny enough, uh, the first deck I ever played was the Atraxa Precon, mm-hmm. because one of my friends just wanted a fourth for a pod and he got all the Precons together. And so I go from a deck that has been can be you know super friends or poison or even sapling or uh spore counters and stuff like that something that in general is very can be very expensive because it's four color and I go now nah, i want to play 30 decks
0: yep that that that, that kind of mirrors how i did my first commander game officially was using the Marin of clan nel toth deck out of the first commander anthology set and I love that deck to death. And I still have never built a Marin deck because the cost of that goes up, but someday maybe I will because I have a lot of the cards that make it work for, and I can probably make it around for a $25 to $50 budget just because there's enough good stuff at the lower end of the price range that I could still throw in there to make it a halfway decent deck to make it competitive at my local pod. Obviously, it's not going to be the most competitive with all pods. There's a lot better ways to build that Marin deck, for instance, but again... With the power of positive thinking and with just enough weirdness in your brain to make you want to try something new, you never know what's going to work until you try it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's that's half of fun.
0: Yep, definitely. So again, Carter, I I'd lo- I I'd like to thank you for being on the show today. We've had a great discussion. Again, where can people find you on the internet if they want to see more of your content?
1: So the easiest way to find me is on my Twitter. Uh, That's the easiest way to find my content as well. My uh, handle is at MTG underscore Naya underscore guy. I have links to all my articles and stuff. Uh, Once again, I'm Titanic Ultimatum, and you can find me under that name uh, for my website.
0: All right, sounds good. And you can find me on Twitter at @mtg_in_quarantine. MTG in quarantine. If you see the very happy looking Ulamog with a pair of headphones stuck in a bubble that you know you've hit the right place. And you can also find the back catalog of my podcast episodes on Spotify, Google Casts, Apple Podcasts, and a lot of other podcast outlets. So, again, I'd like to thank you for being on the show. And, again, this you've been listening to the MTG in quarantine
2: podcast. My name's MJ. Have a great rest of your day.